Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. Do I call you State of the Arters? State of the Artists? I don't know. If you have a suggestion for what to call uh, people who listen to State of the Art, let me know. You can always email me at gabe at thestateoftheart.org or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at State of the Art. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Maya Petrich, really incredible artist who works with installation art, all about the sky, how we look at the sky and interpret it through light installations, installations with fog, artificial intelligence. She's amazing. So go back and listen to that episode, especially if you're interested in what it's like to be an artist. We talk a lot about just the struggles with making art today. We're going to stick with our sky theme today. We have an artist who actually works with outer space. Uh, He lived in a Mars simulation on Hawaii uh, for a, a certain number of months in a small room with a bunch of people. So they simulated this environment of being on Mars. They were actually on a volcano in the middle of Hawaii. So that's going to be in a little bit. Before we get to that, let's answer an email here. Um, Raphael G asks, what are some festivals that showcase new media art that you can recommend? Well, Raphael, um, I think there's one that's coming up called Currents New Media, which happens in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That one's pretty great. I went last year and met a lot of new friends and saw a bunch of really great work. South by Southwest is coming up in Austin, Texas. I'll be there too if you want to come say hi to me. I'm doing a talk about AR, so there's some other good installations you can check out at South by Southwest. Transmediale in Berlin is fantastic. Um, If you're into projection mapping, Nui Blanche in Toronto. SIGGRAPH is great uh, in California. Lunafet in New Orleans, I have to shout out since we did a podcast from their uh, festival last December. So that's a number of festivals to get you started. If you have suggestions for other festivals that you'd like me to feature, uh, send me an email again at scabe at thestateoftheart.org. So let's jump into this week's episode. Angelo Vermeulen is our guest. I met Angelo at a TED conference in Brazil, uh, and he was telling me about his time living in a encapsulated environment on Hawaii. Uh, he was the commander of a mission to investigate how human beings would relate with each other trapped in a small environment as if they were trapped on Mars. So we're going to hear about his artwork, uh, how his artwork deals with space exploration and getting people to be curious and excited about emergence in art. So, Angela Vermeulen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, hi, Gabe. Uh, so, tell me about your background. Were you always interested in art and science? Yeah, that's always been that's always been there. Really, I mean, uh, when I was a kid, um, I was both fascinated by uh, biology, space exploration, but also by culture in general, like literature and photography. And I've always been, yeah, I've always had that in multiple, those multiple interests. Um, and I think I've, I've kind of pursued most of them all the time, basically. When you were a kid, were you one of those kids that would look up at the sky and imagine going to space? Actually, not so much. Um, it's it, because people expect this from me because I've, I've, I'm working in the field of space exploration. I've done a a Mars simulation mission for NASA. Um, I'm involved in, in the world of space exploration, but I, I never actually considered myself as a candidate to go to space. I think it's because um, I was very much into biology um, and I knew I was going to be a biologist for sure. And for me, astronauts, it always seemed like you either had to be an, an engineer or you had to be a fighter uh, fighter pilot. <laughs> and I wasn't really interested in either one of them. So I, I didn't. it didn't really come up to me, no. I heard that you sold a self-published science magazine when you were a kid. Is that, what was that like? What was the, the name of the magazine? Oh, yeah. The name of the magazine was No. <laughs> no? Just like the just word the, No? Just the English No. Yeah. Uh, which is, yeah. Anyway, that was the title that I gave it when I was like 12. Um, 
And um, yeah, I decided to make my own magazine and then start typing. I started writing my own art, uh, articles, basically. And it was a bit the, the same the same idea of, you could say, as Wikipedia. I wanted to clarify things and just but also turn it into a nice story with some nice visuals. But it was all photocopied. And then I um, I basically sold it at, in, in my, at my uh, high school. And the magazine was sold out in, in, in no time. It wasn't a money-making business. I just basically, it was pretty cheap. I just wanted my expenses back. Um, but writing these articles is, was something that I've truly enjoyed. And the very first article that I ever wrote, that was 12, was about the design of spacesuits for astronauts. And yeah, I'm basically still working in the field of space exploration, as I said before. <laughs> and let's, so let's talk about the high seas mission. So people haven't heard of it before. You mm -hmm. lived in a Mars simulator for, was it four months? Yeah, we were locked up for four months with and a small did, group of people. How yeah. did this come about? I mean, was this something that you proposed or did NASA propose it to you? Well, the thing is, High Seas is a was a NASA-funded uh, project a couple of years ago, and it was specifically set up to investigate the effects of long-term isolation on how crews would function and how people would function under a large amount of stress, um, with limited pr privacy, a lot of tasks to be done, uh, unpredictable things that would go wrong, all things that are very typical for space exploration. So it, it's High Seas. Mars simulation is really geared towards investigating social and psychological aspects of space exploration. Um, and so the program was started in 2013. There were a number of missions with increasing length. I was the part of the very first mission. Um, I was also the crew commander of the first mission. We were basically living in a small space in a dome with a diameter of about 11 meters with, uh, in total, were three men, three women with all different uh, kinds of backgrounds. So we was one Canadian, I'm from Belgium, and then four Americans. And you were the commander of this mission. Yeah, that was a that was a big surprise when they asked me if I was interested in in, in this position because I was like, you know, I'm I'm from Belgium, one of the smallest countries in the whole on the whole planet. Uh, I didn't even consider they would ask me uh, because it was a NASA mission. Um, but they took into account my experience as a community organizer. I've been working with communities for a number of years all over the world, and I'm still doing that. And that basically, that's the reason that they asked me uh, to be the commander. So this was a psychological study in a way. Um, mm -hmm. How were they studying you while you were inside of the simulation? Um, yeah, that's the, the, one of the typical ways to do these kind of experiments is you have to fill out a lot of questionnaires and you have to report a lot at the end of the day. So that's what we did. Um, all kinds of all kinds of questionnaires. Um, and personally, I was involved in a study on autonomy and the importance of autonomy within um, within such missions. Because uh, in contrast with what's happening now at the International Space Station or even when you're on the moon, there is no more real time contact when astronauts are going to Mars. And so this this communication delay will will yeah this this will generate a whole new situation in in space exploration because suddenly the astronauts are much more have to be much more independent have more autonomy to make decisions, um, and so that's one of the one of the things that needs to be investigated because right now space exploration is very controlled astronauts their their work schedule and everything they do is extremely controlled, so that that was one of the things that uh, we looked into and the, the role and the importance of autonomy but. 
Apart from, from these typ more typical psychological things, we also looked into food. We did a very extensive food study and uh, trying to figure out what kind of diet, what kind of food um, you would give astronauts once they were uh, on Mars. And so where, where did this uh, installation take place for the simulation? The, the simulation, uh, our simulation took place in 2013. And, and which, which part of the world was it in? Yeah, I didn't. I forgot to say this was in Hawaii. Oh, the, not a bad uh, place Mauna. to be stuck, in a way. <laughs> well, we were living on the Mauna Loa volcano, the basically the biggest volcano on the planet, um, but uh, high, pretty high up. So we couldn't see the ocean. We couldn't see any beaches or any palm trees. It was just lava fields all over the place. Just the occasional bird that flew over. Uh, we had a small porthole window, but apart from that, there was no life. And that location was chosen because it was similar to a Mars terrain? Yeah, of course. The geology of the Mauna Loa volcano is actually very, very similar to that of Mars. And also, it's it's simply uh, it's simply very isolated. The chances of bumping into somebody are, are, are close to zero. So uh, for these reasons, it's a very good uh, analog uh, location. And what was it like to be inside of this structure for that amount of time, not seeing other people besides your crew? I mean, it must have been very strange, <laughs> but I'm curious about the psychological aspects, you know, that were going on in your own mind at this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I must say, um, I actually like these kind of missions. I think if you're in, in, the, in, in the field of space exploration, I think that's, that's I guess, what, what you do. You, you kind of enjoy these experiments. Uh, but nevertheless, of course, it, it, it's, uh, it's not without its own particular challenges. Um, I think... I learned so much during this experience. Uh, of course, I learned a lot about space exploration and, and the ins and outs of, of setting up a Mars mission. I learned so much more about it. Also, because some of my crew members, actually, one of my crew members was actually uh, in the final selection uh, to be an astronaut. And she didn't make it all the way through, but she had a lot of stories about the selection procedure, which was very interesting, for example. Um, so we shared, we shared, of course, uh, a lot, a lot of stories there. But what I learned uh, mostly about is, for me personally, was basically leadership. Being put in a position as a commander is a very particular responsibility, of course. And uh, one thing is, which is, which is uh, typical for space exploration, is that when you're a commander in in space or in a space sim simulation, um, you can't, you can't take up this very traditional military style of, 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 of leading. That's not going to work. The thing is, the people you live with, you work with, are highly accomplished. They are multidisciplinary. They know what needs to be done. So it's much more about facilitating uh, a group like that. And that, this was a, a huge learning curve for me as well, even though I already had quite a bit of experience with building communities, like I said, all over the world. Uh, this, was, this was really interesting. But some of the more difficult things uh, I remember is that, for example, one of the typical things that happens when people are isolated is they develop sleep issues. And we all had our particular kind of sleep issue that we started developing over time. Uh, and it's very difficult to, 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 get, to get rid of that. Also, what, is, what, is, um, what I thought was a really uh, interesting challenge is how to keep the group together during such an extended period of time. Because... People have a tendency, of course, after some time, because you keep seeing each other in this small space, 24 hours, to start removing. There's always a tendency that some people start removing themselves a bit more from the group. But that's something that I absolutely wanted to avoid as a commander. I really wanted to group to. I wanted a high crew cohesion. 
Um, and this was this was of course a challenge. Just I had to work on this uh, every single day. Um, and then I must admit, um, not having that freedom of movement, uh, and not just in a physical sense, but also in a in a in a sense that you have to. You have to ask for permission to go outside, but there was also, there was also a mission control and they went to uh, or mission support. We had to send a message with delayed email to ask for permission to go outside, for example, with a spacesuit. Just that idea that I was I remember being in there and I'm thinking about when I'm going to be out of here. Just the idea that I'm in a room and I can throw open the door and I can walk out at any given moment. This, I was like, I'm going to appreciate this so much once I'm out of here. Right. Uh, I can imagine it must be sort of infuriating to know that you're in the simulation. Like you're not going to die if you suddenly walk outside. You're in the middle of a a volcano in Hawaii, but you have to play by these rules. So you would put on a spacesuit every time you left the simulation? Yeah, that's that's of course something we had to do. These are s- spacesuit simulators. They're not real spacesuits. Real spacesuits are very expensive. That that would not that would not make sense. Um, but these spacesuit simulators, they you know they, they look like spacesuit, like actual spacesuits, um, some types uh, of them, and um, they basically have two roles. On one hand, they kind of isolate you from the outside air, so you're never really exposed to the temperatures and and air. Uh, from the outside, and also they inhibit your movements. They just make it more difficult for you to move around to take geological samples, which is you know close to what would happen if you would be on Mars. So, did you actually take samples of the volcano, uh, or what were you doing when you were on these spacewalks outside of the the bubble? So, this, basically, the, we had two geologists in our crew, and they uh, they did a lot of work uh, on mapping the terrain, and then we were helping them to map the terrain and to figure out the geology, and then the basically the the origins of the geology of all the lava flows and how it you know just just trying to get a grip on that, trying to understand the geology of the surroundings was basically a major um, a major research objective of these uh, of these walks. But you're also an, an artist, and so I, I know that you took a bunch of photos while you're outside on one of these spacewalks. Did you did you view that as an art project while you were doing it, or was it more about collecting samples and collecting data of the outside world? No, actually, I mean, of course, I made a lot of casual photos just documenting what's going on in daily life. Um, but I did have I did have this idea of the, of distilling an art project uh, out of this, and uh, honestly, uh, just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, the, my photos got back from uh, an, an, a museum exhibit here in the Netherlands, so I'm still I'm still exhibiting the work. Um, and so, what I really was fascinated by is, on one hand, what I'm trying to show in the photos is, on one hand, this uh, this uh, enacting and then trying to enact and all these these trying to enact life on a different planet. But then, when you zoom in, you see that a lot of the stuff is actually, you know. It's 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 pretty uh, how to put it. Um, uh, I can't find the word in English right now, but it's 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 kind of uh, they're not they're not high end uh, uh, materials. For example, for example, the interior of the of the of the habitat, a lot of those materials actually came from IKEA and Walmart. They were not space <laughs> they were not space graded materials. And even the suits, if you looked up close, you could see they were handmade and they were stitched together and stuff like that. That's probably so how it's gonna like, be, oh. you know, and when we eventually get to Mars, well, it'll be sponsored by IKEA and everything will be just IKEA furniture everywhere. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I don't, I don't, maybe maybe in the long run. No, but <laughs> what what I'm trying to say is just, just on one hand this desire 
to create this 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 world that you inhabit that really looks like the real thing and on the other hand there is the frustration that actually it is just a simulation and it is just something that came out of ikea and it's not really it doesn't look like space enough and it's this you you basically have to fight your suspension of disbelief all the time it's it's just it's this battle yeah, it sort of seems like a performance artwork in a way, the entire yeah, thing. Yeah. Or like, I mean, it is Absolutely. a social experiment, but you are kind of a performer in this simulation as well. You're getting instructions or lines from mission control and things you have to enact, even though they're not actually serving a purpose other than to study how you're working with other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a correct reading of it. And actually, I've actually transformed this experience and used it in our art projects. Uh, there is one particular art project in which we used this uh, experience, which is called Seeker. Uh, and in the Seeker project, we prototype starship structures, like architectural structures, pretty large-scale structures built out of recycled materials um, as a prototype of how a local community envisions life outside of Earth. And then to test these, 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 these DIY structures, we actually inhabit the structures without coming out multiple days on end, living inside our artwork in the museum. Uh, and then it becomes really a, an, an actual performance. And what do these structures look like? Well, they they look. They have, we've had different types of uh, shapes. We had kind of biomorphic shapes, and they had more traditional shapes that are more reminiscent of of what you would expect from a spaceship. We had more like cubistic shapes. So there's all kinds of of interpretations. Basically, depends very much on the on the specific community we work with. And the thing is. We work with communities that are not space professionals. We work with, with, with other people. And it's this di- this ongoing dialogue on how human life outside of Earth could be envisioned. Um, coming from people that are not deep in that or in that specific world of space exploration, that makes it really interesting. And that's why you, how you, you get all these new ideas and, and somewhat sometimes unconventional uh, ideas coming out. Have there been surprises in terms of how people uh, build these structures and then you have to live inside of them? Like, wh- what, are, what are the biggest surprises that have come out of working with these communities? Uh, biggest surprises? Well, I think the, the, the element of, of privacy is always, a, is always a big one. So there's always a bit of, of back and forth on how to organize that. So on one hand, uh, you notice that people want to build structures inside in which they have enough privacy. But on the other hand, they do realize that just isolating yourself in a structure like this wouldn't be very conducive and you need these social spaces. So this is a dialogue that is always pretty uh, pretty intense. Another thing that is always uh, very present is the whole idea of trying to build a closed a closed loop system. Of course, we don't have the, the means to build a high technological closed loop system, but how can we grow, grow food inside of the structure and recycle as much as we can? And there's always generates all kinds of solutions. We've been working with aquaponics. We've been uh, growing insects that we then ate within uh, within the missions and stuff like that. Wait, so the missions are performance inside of a gallery, though, in the end, or a museum? Yes, either inside of a museum or outside uh, outdoors. And what's the longest uh, time frame that one of these missions has gone on for? 
Yeah, that's just a number of days. I think four days or five days or something. I should I should look it up. This is not comparable to the actual missions that I did for uh, mission that I did for NASA, of course. But um, and mind you, these are structures that are built with mostly recycled materials and thrift store materials. So it's it's pretty challenging uh, to <laughs> yeah, survive they... in this with a number of with a number of people. I remember there was one mission, and I didn't. I, in most missions I participated, but in one of them I did not. And I think that at the literally the first half hour there there was already conflict, and it was basically a discussion between um, a vegan uh, crew member and then uh, non 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 vegan crew members. And there was basically a discussion on how to do the dishes, and the vegan crew member was like, "I don't want to do my dishes in the dishwashing water of the other people because you know I, I refuse that." But they had a very limited water supply, so they had to be smart about it. And they couldn't solve it. They started discussing <laughs> food wow. and preparing food, and and it lasted until the end. It just, uh, yeah, it just went south right from the beginning. How do we prepare for something like this? Like, if we were all had to live in one place together, you know, in one small environment together, are there tips that you would recommend to people? I'm just thinking about on a global scale. We're fighting so much with each other constantly, especially in the U.S. right now, um, mm-hmm. but all over the world, you know, we're having trouble getting along. You, mm, you live in the point. simulation with people. Do you have tips for how we could actually get get along better through some sort of social engineering? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, crew cohesion for me was key. It was my leading principle, and I'm very passionate about this in general. And a lot of my work, also the community work that I do as an artist, is guided by these principles of of trying to to bring worlds together. Um, Keeping all communication channels open at all times is really something that works. Um, it's something that I applied in the mission. And it, it basically means that you have a morning briefing where everybody quickly summarizes what they want to do during the day. Uh, you try to share meals. Um, there are social events that are being organized, like movie nights and stuff like that. So th- this kind of openness and transparency and communication keeps flowing like i said before what you don't want is people start isolating themselves in their own rooms and then yet yeah, the whole group starts to to fall apart people start to disconnect and and one of the beautiful things that happened because we were so aware of each other's needs and each other's research people spontaneously offered help they were like hey but i can actually help with this because we were all very aware of, of what was going on with the other and then you can spontaneously uh, offer a solution and if one person starts doing this this kind of cascades down because it's like a domino domino effect you know other people start doing it as well in the whole you create a kind of culture of supporting supporting each other um another thing that i did was every saturday morning and it was part of my autonomy research that i did together with the university of ghent in belgium every saturday morning we would do a um, a group session and basically um, have two main questions that the group answered every single Saturday morning. The first question was, how did you cope this week? And the second question was, how did you try to improve things? And these became very meaningful, very deep personal sessions. There was, of course, a therapeutic therapeutic value in these in these conversations. But I think I believe that it also helped to glue to glue the group uh, together. Yeah, I definitely need to ask myself those questions more often every week as well. <laughs> I don't even live in a space simulation, but I tend not to think about things in that way. Yeah, it seems like a lot of your work uh, has to do with curiosity and sparking curiosity, and then that that's, that leads to a conversation that inspires change in some way. Um, I'm curious how many locations you built Seeker in so far. And is there, is there an upcoming show that people could actually go see it in? 
Um, it's been a, it's been a few years since we built. Oh, uh, not not so not so long actually. I think one or two years ago we built the last one. I think there's been about five or six in total. I think six because we're building this with our uh, collective, with the Seeds Collective. Uh, we're a collective of artists, scientists, engineers, and activists. And so I'm basically when I show work, it's from within that collective. I'm rarely showing work as an individual artist. I'm usually presenting work uh, from uh, from that collect uh, from within that collective. Um, there is another project, Biomod, which is also a community project, and that one has been built like 30 times over the past uh, 13 years, I think. So that's a project that has been spreading uh, even more. Tell me about Biomod. So is this a piece? Uh, this piece involves like tanks, right? Like large tanks of water. Yeah, that's one component of it. That's one component of it. Biomod is a project in which we um, we go we we teach communities how to recycle e-waste, old computers that people have thrown out, and then we have we we just sh- uh, show them how to see which components are still working and how to combine components coming from different computers into functioning computer units, and then we connect these computer units that are working again into a kind of a sculptural format, and crucially, at the end or during, well, not not necessarily at the end, but crucially, we built living ecosystems inside of the computers that use the waste heat of the electronics to grow and develop. So these are large structures filled with electronics that is all there, all these net, uh, all kinds of components are connected. And then have all kinds of plants and fish and algae all living together with that electronic world. And it's it's physically living together, but it's also operating together. I mean, there is there is a functionality to it. And the algae, the, the tanks you're referring to, is actually, um, these, are, these, these are cultures of single-celled algae. And we're, what we're basically doing is we're liquid cooling part of the computers using uh, these algae. So instead of using commercial toxic coolant liquid, we're using a living organic uh, liquid, basically. And the algae cool the computers and the computers give their heat to the algae through which they grow better. So it's basically a symbiosis between motherboards and single-celled algae. And do you view this as sort of a a possible solution for a future problem of e-waste? Or is it more to get a conversation going about the relationship between technology and the natural world? It's both. It is really both. I mean, on a a very uh, first level, it really, um, uh, how to put it, it helps people and also ourselves included it helps people to re-envision relationships between nature and technology and to question paradigms on those relationships. Yeah, that makes sense. And and not just through discourse, but through actually physically engaging with it and figuring out different ways of connecting both worlds. Because the way I explain it now is pretty straightforward. It's like waste heat and recycle it. But in later versions of the project, we've been, we've been, we have experimented with sensors and robotics to to make more subtle and and, and more intricate uh, connections between the electronics and uh, the ecosystems that we built inside of the, those those computer networks um, but yes of course it is and it is empowering people to uh, to deal differently with waste um, and uh, so that's definitely also part of the, the artwork and there's no adverse effect of the technology alongside these ecosystems. Like I, I just imagine, like some of the e-waste could hurt or <laughs> or destroy some of the algae in the system. But that doesn't seem to happen. You've perfectly balanced this relationship. Um, so far, we've never had this. I mean, things can always go wrong. 
Um, but so far, it, it, we never had any adverse effects on the country. The things just grow and bloom. Hmm. <laughs> we At a certain point, we actually started growing vegetables inside these biomod projects, and we harvested the vegetables as, as a, almost a perf- in a performative gesture. Um, Did you eat the around- vegetables? Yeah, yeah, we ate them. Like I said, it, it was a little performance for uh, for the team, and then uh, we celebrated the harvest of our biomod project. Wow! Yeah, that, that's what we did. That was in New York. Uh, we did that in the New York Hall of Science. We built a, a really extensive uh, biomod project years ago. And but the thing is, I'm just curious. The, you said biomod is a collaborative project, a community project. How does the community get involved in the building of these ecosystems? Yeah. So the way we 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 operate, the way we create art as as uh, with our seeds collective is we use co-creation and bottom-up design as our core principles so basically we have this idea that we're spreading like e-wastes plants connecting them and building these new new these kind of hybrid systems but there's no particular shape so whenever we get invited to do a project somewhere um, we start building a community around the project often in close collaboration with the partners that invite us. Uh, for example, when we were building uh, Biomod at the New York Hall of Science in New York, we're basically the museum was helping us to reach out to neighboring communities and to all kinds of people with different backgrounds. And then once we start the project, basically it was the first thing that we do is showing people how to take out to take how to take apart computers. That's the, the kind of standard way we start the project. Now we collect a huge pile of e-waste, a box of screwdrivers, and then we tell people, go for it. Unscrew everything, take everything apart. People love it. They just go for it. And then the next step, of course, is trying to understand how these systems work and slowly building it up. But then there is no real shape on how the project should evolve. And we don't give many directions. So it's basically the group that starts experimenting and building and gradually the work emerges out of that experimentation. It's pretty decentralized. It's not entirely decentralized, but it's very, uh, as much as we can, very decentralized. And this is, you talked about curiosity and I, I would, of course, but I would call it a fascination with emergence. Hmm. I think this is really a, a thread in everything that I do, in, from science and engineering all the way to art and design. I'm really fascinated by systems that emerge out of interactions without any predefined plan. And these are systems that are, you're, you're qualifying that as the humans that are participating in this exhibit are also the system that emerges. It's not just the, yeah, uh, the biosystem. Exactly. It's basically a social, technical, ecological system that you're that, that that is emerging there. And the beauty is that once the project is is has been built and it's operational, because I didn't I didn't explain this, the actual network of computers is being used for multiplayer computer gaming. So once the work is exhibited, people can actually visitors can actually engage with each other using that system and play with each other. And um, so even after it's finished, it still operates as a social as a social structure. Wait, wait what? <laughs> I'm a little confused. What is the game that they're playing with each other then? When you say there's a multiplayer game element of this. Yes. So we built that net. So we build all these computer uh, computer units. We network all these computer units, computer functioning computer units, and then we install open source software, Linux, basically, and then we install open source games that obviously we kind of hack or we make our own game in the Philippines, for example. We build a biomod in which we have a very custom made game. It really depends from location to location. I see. And do the games ever influence the ecological environment that you're creating? Is there any yeah, interplay? Yes, and that's something we did. In, once again, in that in that version, and in, in the New York uh, Hall of Science, 
um, we actually had a virtual world in which um, players had to collect uh, resources to give to virtual entities. And then if the virtual entities had enough of these resources, they could control robotics that would actually take care of the plants. So everything was like connected. The virtual world, the players and the, the plants, everything was like uh, connected. And what are the reactions of people who visit your installations like this? Obviously, they're part of the creation of it. But do people that do people understand it that aren't necessarily part of the first uh, studies or part of the community aspect of the piece? These, these projects do have a strong impact. And I think, um, well, for example, just, just to t- continue talking about Biomod, uh, I think it, it, it operates on two levels. On one hand, um, people do sense that this is not the statement of one singular artist, that this is really a, a community work. This is, this is really something that people are very fascinated with. Um, but on the other hand, this, this weird, strange combination of plant life and computer electronics living in peace, in harmony next to each other for most people is very surprising. And I remember the very first one was uh, at the Aesthetic Technologies Lab at Ohio University. Um, it was more like a vertical structure uh, with, with, with uh, a transparent vertical structure with a number of computers that were kind of connected in an open way so you could see the water boards and the graphic cards and everything and then all these plants living around it. And we installed a number of small fans in the ecosystem. So the leaves would be moving slightly and you saw this whole ecosystem like like really being alive. And I remember visitors coming in and consistently staying away, like two meters away from from the piece, because hmm. they were like, "What's going on here? This this looks this looks like this is not meant to happen." You know, all these electricity cables and everything, and all these electronic components, and then these rustling leaves. This is going to go wrong somehow. Um, so it does, yeah, it does have that impact. And when you're designing with a group of people, do you ever find yourself as an artist wanting to guide them in a certain way that they don't necessarily observe or want to go? Like, you know, at least for me as an artist, I like to have control over everything when I'm making something. And so it seems like you're relinquishing control to an outside group. Do you ever find yourself being like, no, don't do it that way? Like, (laughs) you know, it's not going to work. You know, you don't want to live in a structure that they're building that way or you don't think it's going to work in terms of the science. I think that's really at the heart of the methodology of our collective. And it's, it's always a struggle. It's never easy. It's really so hard. But I'm, 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 like I said, I'm fascinated by emergence. But of course, I have a strong sense of aesthetics and of concept, conceptual thinking that is, you know, embedded in these projects. And you don't want to. So honestly, it's a daily, it's a daily challenge. So on one hand, what happens is if you, um, as a facilitator, um, because we facilitate these projects, but we also participate actively. We don't, we're don't. we not just standing by the side looking at other people making the work. We're, this is not a workshop. It's an actual art piece that we make together. But if you're disconnecting yourself too much and you're just letting everything go, people lose motivation. The thing becomes a little, it loses direction. And then if you, if you, you bec- as an artist, you become too, you know, you start directing things too much. People get pissed off, of course. They're like, well, this is supposed to be a community project, so don't tell us what needs to be done. And once again, um, if 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 this uh, if this happens with a transparency that works, because I allow and I ask the people that work with this uh, on this with me, um, if I'm if I'm too controlling, just tell me. And they will tell me. They will be, Angelo, stop it. <laughs> You're micromanaging. <laughs> and it's it's always a little jarring, of course. It's like, shit, I did it again. Right. Um, 
but it, it it works really well. And honestly, of course, people that are not artists that have no arts background, I do have to engage in a little in a bit of conversation about you know the the way you make installation art. So there is a bit of of educational conversation there going on as well, of course. I mean, how do you explain the importance of arts to a scientist or somebody who comes from a very technical field that maybe you might not understand that you're creating a piece that is a combination of art and science together? Is there a tension there for you? It's, um, well, honestly, <clears throat> I think I think you can explain art to anybody. You can explain contemporary art to anybody. Um if 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 you um if you jump on the level of the, the the fundamental aspect of art art trying to say something which you cannot say through science art opening a dimension which is very difficult to put into words art giving meaning to life which is beyond what we what we calculate and every single person is sensitive about this every single person somehow had an experience about it like this so if you first need to connect with people on that higher level somehow without being pedantic without being you know i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to tell you how it is being very respectful to people but just sharing your perspective on what art means for you and they will they will connect it they will connect it somehow I remember um, there's a good friend of mine an engineer uh, he's a retired engineer basically and sometimes i work with him for a very particular technical technical projects and and he's he's really into mathematics and physics and engineering and art for him is yeah he's he knows it's around but it's not really his thing and so we're working on this project and at a certain point it was about electromagnetic interference of data um we're using cables and at a certain point he, he comes he walks up to me and he's like you know angelo what we could do is we could use this large spool of wire uh, and it's honestly it's way too much you don't need all this wire but it's it's just gonna look so powerful you know people are gonna need they, they're gonna get the message straight away and i was like whoa <laughs> you're now you're thinking like an artist you know it's, it's it's beyond functional it's it's suddenly you're thinking about the impact of an image that you're generating and, and so you can really draw everybody in that kind of thinking right it's a new form of communication that can express something that you can't express it another way i guess um, you're currently working towards your second PhD. Can you tell us what you're studying uh, with this PhD? Yes. So my my um, <clears throat> my first PhD was essentially in developmental biology and ecology. So I'm a, like I said, I'm a biologist. But what I'm doing now is I'm working at an engineering university and I'm working in the field of space exploration. And I'm more specifically focusing on interstellar exploration, designing concepts for future spaceships that can bring us to different stars way beyond our solar system. And one of the key challenges in interstellar exploration is the unpredictability of the journey. It's dealing with uncertain futures here, which is a beautiful metaphor for what's happening on our planet, actually. Um, there's a big difference. If we, if we look at, for example, how the Apollo program was developed, it's basically Apollo 11 that landed on the moon. And the 10 missions before were gradually getting closer to the moon, but each time we're coming back to Earth. And then everything that was was, was discovered and learned and, and was used to optimize the system. So all the things that could go wrong, uh, safety systems were, were, were installed, et cetera, et cetera. So gradually, they were getting closer to their target. Now, when you're talking about interstellar exploration you're not going to go a little bit interstellar and then come all the way back to earth to fix a few things and then go back that would take centuries to get to that start um, so you need a different approach but this is a bit of a conundrum for an engineer right you're supposed to design a system 
for a series of challenges that you cannot fully predict. You're dealing with that kind of deep uncertainty. Um, and this is where biology comes in. And this is actually where my developmental biology background comes in. So I came up with this idea of uh, designing spaceships that can actually develop themselves over time and can evolve during the journey. So they're, they're more like almost like organisms traveling through space mm. uh, that can that can respond to unexpected challenges. And how do these organisms change or how do, the, how do these spaceships change uh, over time? So the core technologies that we're combining are asteroid mining and 3D printing. There are a number of companies now, especially uh, American companies, that are investigating the possibility of 3D printing in space, which would be a huge step forward instead of building everything on Earth and then shipping it to space to actually print structures in space. And so we use that idea and we combined it with uh, asteroid mining because for printing, obviously, you need resources. And there's many resources out there in the solar system, asteroids. They contain all kinds of materials, ice, but also building materials, different kinds of metals. And so what we're basically doing, and this is conceptual research, we're not building hardware yet. We're still in a very theoretical uh, stage here. The idea is to basically capture an asteroid and then gradually mine the, uh, the, the interior of the asteroid and then use the refined materials that come out of the asteroid to 3D print a structure, a space architecture that gradually comes out of the of the asteroid. So you basically have this hybrid structure, which is partly natural, it's the original asteroid, and then partially machine-made, the 3D-printed archi architecture. And that combination of those two elements is that becomes the spaceship. So you would be actually 3D printing new spaceships in space, or is this a component that would then be attached to a spaceship that already exists? So the, the idea is basically that... Um, you're not. You're basically staying connected to the asteroid, and you're actually using the asteroid as a shield, as a forward shield. So the front of the asteroid is retained. You're not consuming the the, the whole of the asteroid. You're retaining part of the asteroid, and so you're building a modular architecture inside of the asteroid. And then, as a tail, it kind of grows out of the asteroid, and it's that entire structure that becomes the spaceship. Wow, this is <laughs> this is wild, Angelo. Are you considering physical issues like are you sorry issues with physics in terms of actually 3D printing in space or is this more like developing a concept for a possible iteration later on in the future? Um, yeah, I'm like, trying to figure out how scientific the study is at this point. Yes, that's a good point. So that so that that's one part of the concept that we've been working on for a number of years now at Dallas University of Technology. The second part of the of the research deals with how to sustain life inside such a structure. I mean, there's no point in building a concept where the spaceship arrives intact at destination, but everything inside is dead. So, and for that, we're using a concept of a regenerative ecosystem, an ecosystem that actually regenerates itself using waste materials and is constantly cycling and producing food and oxygen for the for the inhabitants. Mm. And for that, we're using an, an, an existing system that was developed by the European Space Agency, which is called MELISSA. It's an artificial ecosystem concept. And so, in order to uh, to to sign to research this, to turn this into science, because up to now. It's pretty much science fiction, what I've been talking about, right? Um, to turn this into science, we are actually building uh, computer models. So we've built two computer models um, that actually, in which we can actually simulate uh, aspects of this, of this concept. So we have one computer model, which is really simulating the mining and the gradual printing of, of uh, architectural modules. 
uh, as a response to population dynamics, because the population in these ships is a generation starship, the population gradually increases. And we have another simulation in a kind of different software where we simulate plants, bacteria, and people living together in endless loops and see how long they can survive. And what are the design influences for these for these asteroid spaceships? Like, what do they look like? Yeah, they look a little um, different than what you know from science fiction. This is kind of it. Yeah, we have we have visuals and, and they're online. Um, they look like, uh, of course, you have this spherical asteroid, and like I said, there is this tail of of, of small modules coming out. Um, so it's a bit difficult to describe. It's um, that's that's the beauty. We didn't we didn't seek out a particular new aesthetic to design spaceships. The the design actually came out of embracing a few core principles, um, and that's that's what I like the most. Um, but what I haven't what I haven't explained, and I'll briefly explain it, is I've been talking about a growing spaceship, a spaceship that gradually expands, and it just the printers are keep keep on printing more and more architectural modules. But the second element, the second component that we added to the concept is evolution. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a like I said, I'm a developmental biologist. I look at morphologies. That's that's how I, how I look at the world, and because the spacecraft is built out of these modules there is a possibility to reshuffle the modules and to re to recreate the morph to to adjust the morphology some modules are life support they're biological some modules are for human habitation some modules are shielding and you can shuffle them around and you can rebuild your structure along as you go hmm. oh, that's fascinating do you ever face criticism from people who feel like these projects are too uh escapist you know what I mean? Like there, there's so many people talking right now about moving to Mars, about moving into outer space, about building space communities. Uh, and then there's sort of a strong faction of people that feel like we should be fixing the problems on Earth. How do you respond yeah. to criticism from, from that? Yeah, camp of I hear that a lot, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, shouldn't we fix Earth first before we go into space? Well, the thing is, there are a few things that I always need to clarify when people say this. First of all, the world of space exploration is not outside of Earth. And this is something we need to. This is this is a, a 50s idea, you know, that space is somewhere far away. Space is really has penetrated human civilization deeply, and it's one continuum. There are objects from on the surface of Earth all the way to the International Space Station and beyond, and that is one zone. Um, space exploration, space technology is consistently helping us to understand Earth to take care of Earth, to analyze Earth, to make policies on how to move forward. And even in our daily life, even this podcast that we're recording right now is, is infused with space technology. So it's impossible to disconnect space from, from Earth. It is, one, it is one world. So you can't just say, let's stop funding space and just go back to Earth. This is where the stage where this has become impossible. So we have to look at it as one, as one continuum. And like I said, um, space is not inhibiting taking care of earth on the contrary we discovered and we and we 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 understand climate change because of space exploration and we can figure out solutions for climate change because of space exploration so we need it we need this so if you want to solve problems on earth yes you will actually need even more space exploration i mm -hmm. would say <laughs> that's fantastic angelo thank you so much for being on the podcast before we finish today we have a tradition here to do rapid fire questions at the end of every episode. So these are questions that may not have to do anything with your work at all. Um, kind of silly questions to help people get to know you better. 
So mm -hmm. don't think of them too much. Don't overthink them. I'm just going to you know fire a couple at them. Whatever comes into your mind uh, first is the best answer. Um, do you have a favorite science fiction movie? Um, yes. Uh, Space Odyssey 2001 is definitely one of my favorites. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Uh, is there a specific scene in that that you like? Yeah, I like how the the lady is uh, collecting. She, she it's um, one of the the hostesses, and she's 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 going to bring the food to the pilots, and then she kind of she turns upside down, and then she moves uh, she moves away. I don't know if you know the scene. Yeah, I know the but scene. It's a very very interesting scene. Um, you are a DJ, right? Is that correct? I used to DJ, but that's quite a <laughs> while ago. Yes, yes. What was the song that you would play to get everybody on the in the uh, dance floor moving? Oh, well, you know, it, it's a little abstract because I was actually teaching music from and sounds from computer games. Um, really? So it's yes. So that, that was my set together with a friend from uh, from Canada. And honestly, it's been a number of years ago. I, I don't remember which one was the one that really got everybody moving, but we, it was pretty obscure. <laughs> so it wasn't like the theme of Super Mario Brothers. You wouldn't be playing. Yeah, that. and some chiptune music was there as well. Yeah, yeah I love chiptune music. Of, uh, yeah. Um, if you could bring one personal object on a journey into space, what would it be and why? I think I would take a PlayStation. <laughs> so you could play the chiptune music? <laughs> no, no, the, the chiptune music. But I'm always like, you know, um, I think I think this would be... I, I Actually, during the first two months of my uh, my Mars simulation, I, in the evenings, I would, I would always uh, play a game. Uh, the last two months, I didn't have time for it any longer. But... Um, yeah, it really helps me to uh, to relax and to just, you know, you're, you're virtually in a different world and I could explore other kinds of worlds uh, in outer space uh, whenever I needed to. Do you have game recommendations for our audience? I don't play a whole lot of video games, so I'm always curious what are the ones that I should not miss. Oh, the latest one that I've uh, that I'm that I'm currently playing, which is really amazing, is uh, Death Stranding by Hideo Kojima. Hmm. Uh, it is a Japanese game, and it'll blow your mind. It's okay. very weird, <laughs> very strange, and very interesting. Yeah, those are the kind of games that I like. Just the most bizarre, kind of very yes, story-heavy exactly. games. Yes, exactly. Then this is this is definitely going to be one you like. So, uh, what's next for you as we finish up here? What What are the next projects you're working on? Um, apart from wrapping up the PhD, we're actually we actually have a project in which we uh, launch a uh, we've launched our first artwork in space, and uh, that was in December. It circled Earth for one month, came back. Now we're going to rework it, and we're going to send it back in October. So that's a, a pretty it's a collaboration with a, a biology uh, professor. And what's the artwork that you launched in the space? How much time do you have <laughs> left? <laughs> you can get, break it down. I'm just curious personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's basically a professor that works on rotifers, and rotifers are small microscopic organisms with some unique capabilities. And one of their unique capabilities is that they um, they can actually repair their DNA in a pretty spectacular fashion. You can dehydrate them, and then at that moment their DNA falls, breaks into pieces. You can even destroy their DNA even more by irradiating them with proton guns, for example. But as soon as you Give them a drop of water, they will pop back up, pop back to life, and start. They will repair their DNA basically, and mm. like I said, in a pretty efficient way. And the thing is, the European Space Agency wants to figure out if they retain this DNA repair mechanism in space. And we were asked by this uh, professor from the University of Namur, uh, Karin van Donink, uh, and we were asked by her if we wanted to add an, an artistic component to the space experiment. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's going to launch again soon. 
And it's going to launch again soon. Yeah, it's a story in, in itself. We basically added some uh, specific code uh, that represents a particular shape that we 3D print. Uh, it's a, it's another long story, and actually. All right, thank you. Well, maybe if you can fo follow it on the internet, we'll link to all of your social media and that sort of thing as well. Yes. Angela Vermeulen, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, for State of the Art, this is Gabe BC, and I'll talk to you next Thursday. Thanks for joining me for another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. You can follow me at Gabe BC on pretty much every social media network. State of the Art is an at art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Vanessa Wilson is our producer who I've known for 1.5 years and not a day longer. And Weston Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire. Weston, I hope uh, there's not too many edits to be done in this episode. Stay tuned next week for another exciting discussion in the world of art and technology. Bye.